0: Welcome to The War Room. Ryan Ray here, as always. Good to have you. Today, our guest is Mark Paletta. We recorded this one a while back as well. Um, didn't want to release it back-to-back with our other one on Clarence Thomas. So this is the second interview and in the, the last, I guess, for now, on Clarence Thomas created uh, equal. The, the new book on him. We'll link to all of that in the show notes. But first, let's thank our sponsor, which is Bluehost. Be sure to sign up for hosting at RyanRaySenior.com slash hosting. To get your hosting, if you do, send me a screenshot, and guess what? I'll give you free publicity on this podcast. Okay, let's get to our guest, Mark Pelletta, who has served in the White House as assistant counsel to George H. W. Bush. Also, he worked with general counsel in the Office of Management and Budget in the executive office for President Trump. So, got a lot of experience in politics, I'm going to get to the interview, and then stay tuned the end and we'll talk about the discussion mark is lovely to have you on the program how are you doing today
1: great ryan thanks for having me
0: okay so when books like this come out all i always have to ask was this lucky timing or did you kind of feel that it might be the time to put this book out
1: uh lucky timing uh it was a book that was born from a, a documentary that was made uh, which i was involved with that started in 2016 And and, uh, it was a documentary on Justice Thomas, uh, and it's called Created Equal, Clarence Thomas in His Own Words. And Michael Pack, who is the director of that documentary, sat down with Clarence Thomas uh, for 25 hours and Ginny Thomas for six hours um, and and interviewed him uh, and her. And that became the movie. But as the movie was made, obviously, and I was involved with the the, the movie and the sort of the, the filming and all that kind of stuff that it, 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 um, um, you just, you know, but, but by its very, you know, sort of a PBS, it was gonna be shown on PBS, it's only two hours. So you're losing 25, 24 hours of Justice Thomas, right? On the cutting room floor. And so the idea was, let's make this into a book. And that just took, um, I was in the government at the time. And so when I got out uh, in 2021, we went and pitched it to Regnery. They were great. Tom Spence is the publisher there. And they loved it. And then it just took, I'm practicing law and doing other things. So it took about a year to put it all together. And yes, so it's good timing. The courts had this amazing term. Justice Thomas has had this amazing term, as always. But um, but uh, but but just lucky timing.
0: Yeah, and we actually had on uh, Michael on the podcast. It, it hasn't been released when me and you were recording this, but it will be released by the time... Uh, yours comes out, so we'll be sure to link to that in the show notes as well. He talks about uh, the documentary some on there as well. Yeah, thirty hours is a lot of time to sit down with, uh, you know, anyone. Twenty five hours with one, and six with the other. It's it, that's what he was saying that you were kind of like, hey, you've got all this material that you've got to do something with it. it kind of you kind of pushed him. I don't know if over the edge, but pushed him in the direction of writing the book. It, it sounded like.
1: Yeah. So again, the movie was released in, in uh, January 2020, right before COVID and it was in theaters, and it did well, and then it was on PBS. Michael had made an agreement to show it on, on PBS, and, um, and it was nationally broadcast, so that was in the spring of, of 2020, and then it went on to Amazon and the different platforms, you know, for viewing at home, um, and it was a, you know, it's a fantastic movie. I'd urge your, your listeners to, um, to watch that movie, too, uh, but it's powerful because you're getting to see this visual, you get to see Clarence Thomas in action, you get to see those hearings, you get to see kind of where he grew up and all that stuff. The book is just a lot more of Justice Thomas talking about these issues and other things that you, you know, just couldn't make it into the film. And that's why they're actually a nice combination. Uh, and again, given J- Justice Thomas's you know, sort of um, um, p- place in our society, which I think is our greatest living America, American and our, our greatest justice, that it's a, it's a great way to get to know him.
0: How did you first get involved with Clarence Thomas?
1: So, uh, another lucky chance. I actually met Clarence Thomas when I was a senior in college, uh, and George, uh, George Bush, I was on an internship in DC, George Bush 41, who was the vice president in 1983, was going up to campaign for my uncle, who was the Republican mayor of Bridgeport, Connecticut. Uh, and shockingly, he had been elected because the Democrats, uh, They'd have a primary and the loser would run as an independent. Anyways, my uncle was the incumbent, George Bush is from Connecticut, as you know. And so he came up to campaign. And when I went up on this trip with him, uh, Clarence Thomas, who was the EOC chairman at the time, was at another event at a college talking to, uh, run by my mentor, uh, Tom Mullady. And we connected up after the fundraiser, after the president left and sat and talked with him. And he was just electrifying, you know what I mean? He was a, he just re- really engaged, this was in 1983. Um, and uh, so Justice Thomas, Clarence Thomas was in his early thirties, mid thirties. Um, and it was just just really amazing to be around him and it stuck with me. Fast forward, I go into the Bush 41 White House and um, I'm on the Judicial Selection Committee team and the, you know, the powers that be want to think about having Clarence Thomas be selected as a DC circuit judge. So I either volunteer or get tasked with reaching out to him and asking him for his you know, speeches, his articles, everything he's written so we could vet him. And when I called him, I'm 26 years old, uh, you know, we spent an hour on the phone, I think, talking and, you know, again, another Clarence Thomas, you know, he's just an engaging guy uh, and got all his stuff, loved it because he's taken on everybody under the sun uh, with his principled stands. And we just got to know each other through that process. And then when he went, uh, was nominated for the Supreme Court, I became one of his key Aides. I was still. I was a White House lawyer at the time, but I worked closely, closely with him on that confirmation.
0: Uh, You mentioned the the vetting process. I'm curious whether it's for Thomas or anyone else. Maybe pull back the curtain a little bit for us who have never been a part of that. You hear about, hey, these names are being circulated around, and how does that work? So it's gotten a lot more sophisticated. um, You know,
1: after uh, several, I'll call misses. (laughs) Uh, of different justices. So I was involved with the Gorsuch confirmation and the Kavanaugh confirmation. And I kind of was engaged with some picking of the other judges um, during my time in the Trump White House. But there is a group of people that sort of have, you know, reviews of judges and their opinions and their writings and kind of just kind of vetting them. Right. And they come up with lists of people and, you know, kind of you know, so it's it's really looking to see how this person would be as a judge, right? How they would approach the law. Will they be, you know, what what con, you know, what conservatives or people who respect the Constitution, you know, view right is that judges should not be policymakers. They should not be putting their agenda uh, over the elected bodies that enacted the law or the Constitution. Uh, and so you're looking for somebody who's going to be faithful to that. And it sounds pretty simple, but you're looking for, for you know, how they talk about the Constitution. A lot of times, obviously, in these day and age, more of them have been judges. So you have a record, a judicial record. But the most important ingredient, Ryan, that I kind of uh, d- determined over the years is courage and whether you've been through fire. And to me, like I was new at this point, 26 years old, I was kind of the grunt person reading all this stuff. There are a lot of people, you know, the attorney general and the White House you know, counsel and all those folks are involved with this process, um, reviewed, you know, we sort of did a workup on him, but but it really is courage. And what I saw was Clarence Thomas having been hammered his entire time in Washington DC by the left and never backing down. Uh, And to me, to this day, uh, I've been doing this quite a while. That's the most important ingredient. Um, and I think it, it, it's borne out with Justice Thomas uh, that uh, that is the most important ingredient
0: it is for these justices that that um, like Thomas that, that arise to this level um, are they? you say they, they kind of go through the fire. That's one thing. But are they ruling in a way that maybe is more self-conscious, like they want to ascend the ladder. And so they're trying to um, forge a path, if you will.
1: Yeah, you're looking for that, you know, um, but um, you're looking, you're you're trying to make, with all those factors, you're trying to make, right, that decision of who, who, you know, who understands the role of of, of the judge in our constitutional structure. You know, they're all going to be smart. Some of them are super duper smart, right? And you can see it in their writing and all that stuff. What's their life experience? Uh, What have they done? You, You know, their understanding of government. You know, um, and, um, and when I say that, have they served in other branches? You know, Justice Thomas, right, had served in the Senate, right? He had served in the executive branch. He had served in one of these administrative agencies, right? You talk about the administrative state, right? And so he ran the EEOC, which is kind of quasi, you know, they're, they're ruling on things and they're looking at, so it's an executive um, and, they're, and they're having these hearings where they're, they're hearing different cases. So, you know, his view of, of in Congress, and you know, and I saw that in his writings that Congress was sort of out of control, and um, uh, is um, is in, is all informative. And but at the end of the day, as you can see with lots of the justices that have been selected, um, well, uh, you don't always get it right, right. Uh, Justice Souter, right? Um, You know, Justice Blackman. I think it was less sophisticated back in the 70s in terms of looking for that, that, those kind of attributes. But um, I will say that I was part of the interview team uh, for that first round of judges uh, in in, uh, 2017 when uh, President Trump first came in. And there was a chart my wife had showed me uh, earlier that summer. uh, I had no reason to believe I'd be going into the Trump White House. Um, And at the time I joined, I was Vice President Pence's chief counsel, uh, first year of the administration. And there was a chart that showed that virtually every single Supreme Court justice, uh, except for two maybe, had become more liberal since they'd been on the bench. Going all the way back to, you know, the the uh, the, the, the Roosevelt uh, days um, of, of judges and always trending left. Nobody became more conservative. And this idea of people Trimming their sales, or you know, becoming more liberal because they want to be more respected, right? Because of the pressure of, um, you know, the the coverage and and, and the and, and the press. And can you stand up and stand for your principles? And I showed that chart to all the, uh, you know, each of the people we were interviewing, and saying, "Tell me why this isn't you in ten years. Like, why do you think this happens, and why will you? You know, I don't want you to reach a certain result. I want to tell, like, why do you think this happens?" And it was sort of an interesting discussion, but. At the end of the day, it goes back to the courage, the courage to stick to your principles. Um, You know, people aren't going to agree on everything, even if you're an originalist. Right. Um, But why are you doing this? And um, and I thought it was a good conversation, started to see what these 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 people would say when confronted with this chart and how they think about, you know, how they stick to their principles.
0: It makes me wonder if the reason that Thomas has kind of stayed where he is, is. From his upbringing and kind of the, the kind of going one way and then coming back and thinking through all those issues, maybe he's a little bit more resolute.
1: Uh, great point, Ryan. He, he's a fierce, when you say fiercely independent thinker, it sounds like it's a cliche. It's, that's what he really is. And you're exactly right. As he was finding his way and you know going into the seminary, going into these new new places, he was the first black student. Right. One of two when he went into the seminary uh, in, in high school, his, his sophomore year, uh, it had just been desegregated. And, you know, it, when he goes into those, uh, you know, those environments and then he rejects his grandfather's teachings and he becomes a, a radical and, a, you know, a, 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 a black nationalist um, and then moves away from that. So he's been and he fully says, like, I have a my journey isn't from A to B. Uh, you know, my journey was you know zigzagging, and anyone else, you know, maybe other people have, have go straight from A to B, but mine was a zigzag, and it's really this authenticity of trying to find that path and make sense of it. And you see it in all of his reading, right? When he reads *Native Son*, when he reads *Invisible Man*, then he's reading Ayn Rand and *The Fountainhead*, and he talks about that a lot. And that's why this book is so neat because he refers a lot to these books and the impact they had on him, uh, and the expectations of society of you, right? That's what he says about, you know, the, uh, the protagonist in, in Invisible Man, right? Is, you know, the, only I, the, the, the worst I've ever been treated was when I told the truth, right? And people expect you to lie and then other people are supposed to react to those lies and act how they are supposed to act. And so Clarence Thomas just rejects all of that uh, and really, really bristles at all of those expectations and everything he's done from his, he goes to his music, right? He says in the book, you know, everyone's supposed to listen to Hugh Massaquila, who was some, you know, j- jazz artist back in the early, late sixties, early seventies. I don't have anything against Hugh Masakela, but I don't want to listen to him. Right. I want to listen to country. I want to listen to classical music. And, you know, and so he, it, it, it just goes through his whole life uh, in terms of his daily life and how he's Um, and and I think he says in terms of libertarianism as he sort of first is moving away from his leftism is this idea that nobody's going to tell me how to think right Um, and stay away from me leave me alone that's another one of his mantras he said in in holy cross uh, and going into Yale was uh, you know don't tell me what to think Uh, and I think again that That fierceness that you saw both actually at the in the agencies when he gets into government at the EEOC when he's battling not just with the left every day but with you know the Reagan administration of how to do these things he's having these battles Um, and um, and so um, so that that's just just been a line through his life.
0: What was it like for you going through his confirmation hearing?
1: It was hell, Uh, and it was. you know, my, my reaction—it's—it's it's something that's just um, scarred my soul. Like it's—it's it's had such an impact on me through my entire life, right? I see this guy, great guy, and they try and destroy—they they try and destroy him as a as a human being, and it was tough. Uh, and and but the best, you know, for me at least, right? The best thing to do is to get going and keep fighting. And figure out how we're going to punch through and that's informed me the rest of my life right. Um, you know, how do you as I said, uh, you know, in, when I talked to Senator Danforth for his book, how do you prove a negative, well, I'm going to go do that, you know what I mean this didn't happen I believe all of Anita hills allegations are a complete lie. And so, and, and by the, by the end right of those hearings, when people watched him, the, the. Um, the polling was 58 to 24. The American people believe Clarence Thomas, right? When they got to watch everyone without the filters of the media trying to push a certain narrative, they believed Clarence Thomas. And um, so it was a terrible, terrible time. Justice Thomas was just utterly crushed. As he said, he didn't have much. You know, he came from the segregated South to, for, for, you know, grew up in segregation, his, you know, to, to illiterate parents who were divorced. And he, you know, really came from nothing. All he had was his good name. And that's what they took from him. And, you know, he was very angry, right, that, that, that this, uh, he'd always anticipated, right, that they were going to do something, something, whatever it was, he says in the book, again, um, he read The Trial by Franz Kafka, right, being accused of something that you don't know what it is. And um, so it was, it was a, it was a dark, dark period, he relied on his faith, his wife was incredibly supportive. Uh, right there by his side, as she's, as they both say, the the two became one in that furnace. Um, but um, you know, at the at the, and the you know at, at the end of the day, as you know, he got up there and just just blew up the Senate right with his high tech lynching and called them out. And so, to me, an electrifying but really most powerful testimony, uh, you know, in the Senate, um, you know, certainly in modern times.
0: Do you think he's been able to mentor Brett Kavanaugh? I understand what Brett Kavanaugh went through uh, now that he's on the court.
1: I think, look, he's been a mentor to, I think all the justices. It's interesting, like when Neil Gorsuch, I worked on Neil uh, Gorsuch's confirmation, You know, there are emails in uh, you know Neil Gorsuch's uh, DOJ file where he's praising Clarence Thomas for his kilo dissent, right? I think he's a justice. Amy Barrett was on the court uh, working, just uh, clerking for Justice Scalia when Clarence was there. So yeah, I think he's been a mentor. I helped Brett Kavanaugh get ready for those hearings. I talked to him about Clarence Thomas and his testimony. Uh, I did a a prep session, if you will, called murder boards two days before uh, Brett testified um, uh, on the Blasey Ford allegations. And um, I think if you listen to Brett Kavanaugh's speech, he has lots of language from Clarence Thomas's. He called it a circus. I won't be bullied. You're not gonna bully me out of this. You know, I don't care, basically care about this. See, I'm not leaving the process. And that's exactly what Clarence Thomas did. So I think like a lot of things, including his jurisprudence, the, the, this, the, the act of doing it is an example, right? So Clarence Thomas, with his strong principled opinions, I think have brought a lot of the the, the, you know, the originals justices over to his side to say, hey, we can do this. I think same thing with Britt Kavanaugh and other nominees. You know, you're getting going through this whatever battle, uh, stand strong don't despair, you know, and fight through.
0: Do you think that Thomas is optimistic about the future of the court?
1: You know, he, he just spoke down in Dallas. I was down there where he was concerned about the leak and how, uh, you know, it was designed to tear the court apart and make people not trust each other. So I th- think he definitely has concerns about that. But I think probably he's, you know, ultimately he's an optimist. And the court has been, like I said, I think, going through, it's kind of interesting, right? Them going through fire together has I think probably brought them closer together, right? You looked at some, uh, Justice Sotomayor's comments about Justice Thomas recently, right? Uh, how he's a wonderful man and all that. So uh, to me, those are all signals that we are a family, right? We don't agree on a lot of things, <laughs> um, but, um, um, but I think, and, and I'll say, I'm just an optimist. So I think the court will, uh, survive and, 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 and be okay, uh, despite the attacks, unprecedented attacks uh, on the court, both like sending assassins, right, um, to, to go um, assassinate justices to trying to, you know, uh, intimidate the court and the, the, the justices and all this crazy stuff. Um, uh, so, and I think, I, I think that's ultimately where Justice Thomas would be uh, on
0: it. Yeah, it's interesting because we're talking with your, your co-author and, um, you know, about the fact that for so long, like a decade, he doesn't ask a question from the bench, <laughs> you know? And you start thinking about this, like, I like asking, I have a podcast, I like asking questions. I couldn't imagine sitting for a decade at a job and not asking one question.
1: But <laughs> well, you know what, so two things on that. Um, so to me, it's kind of this fierceness, right? You're telling me what to do, right? And he's not going to bow to you, uh, number one. But more importantly, you know, as Thomas has said, right? he thought that the court and the, the justices were kind of looking to play gotcha or they were doing it to posture, not really to glean information. They had their mind made up. They wanna make their case and show it to the world as to where they are and why this lawyer's wrong or make a sh- shot across the bow to you know, the, the liberal or the conservative, whatever. On the, uh, you know, so they're talking through those questions. And Clarence Thomas is like, that, that doesn't help the process at all. It's just, it's annoying. And so I think he didn't want to participate in it. But when COVID happened and they moved, moved virtual, right, the J- Chief Justice came up with a process where um, he went in seniority of each justice asking a question. So the litigant, like in the normal before COVID, the litigant would start speaking and a, a justice could interrupt him or her in 30 seconds, you know? And so now you're stepping on top of them. Clarence Thomas says in the book, it's wrong, you know, litigant comes, he wants to make his case, let's hear him. And if we need more, you know, answer, you know, if we have questions, let's do that. And so that's what's now happened. The litigant does get time to make their argument uninterrupted. And then the chief will recognize justices. And since then, Ryan Clarence Thomas has asked the question every single case over the past two years, even though they now move back into the court, the chief is keeping that process. Um, and so um, and again, going back to the book, and I hope your 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 listeners will will buy it, Justice Thomas talks about how just imagine this is how he makes it so relatable. Just imagine sitting at Thanksgiving dinner with everybody and everyone talking at the same time and everyone sort of trying to make their points and jumping on top of each other. It's not very productive. And I think he didn't like that. And that's why he didn't ask questions. and And, you know, <laughs> and he wasn't going to bow to oh, Clarence Thomas, you know, and it's, it's just the whole racist trope, right, as we're seeing right now, right, with uh, all this crazy stuff after Dobbs of the attacks on Clarence Thomas, he just really gets them going, uh, and, uh, but he he keeps moving on, he's unfazed by it.
0: How does someone like Thomas deal with, you know, so Dobbs went in his favor, but there's plenty of cases that have not, and so on a Supreme Court justice, uh, obviously, I will never be one, but if I were one, there's a sense in which every case is really important because this is the last straw theoretically, especially in a, in like a, you know, a criminal, uh, uh criminal case something like that. So how does he deal with the cases that he loses? And I say loses, they don't go his way. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I, I guess, um, you know, Michael Pack asked him, Michael, so Michael Pack conducted the interviews and, um, it's interesting. Um, he's, um, he, Michael asked him, what are your favorite cases or most important cases?" And Clarence Thomas said, you know what I don't, I don't do that because some cases every case is important. and even on smaller things uh, or those that would consider smaller, you know those become important. So I think he says I'm playing the long game. I'm gonna do it right, come what may and I'm going to write an opinion. this is what I believe. we've done the work, we've done the digging. You know, we've, we've we've broken through all the precedent. You know that people stop at and say, "Oh, let's stop thinking. This is what we have to follow." Breaks through that, and kind of really says, "What's the right answer?" And I'm going to put it down, and then maybe one day in the future, you know, people are going to come to it. And, and I think there was a case, um, Americans for Prosperity, the First Amendment case last term, right, which was a six-three uh, Thomas opinion, um, and I think Justice Sotomayor had said something like. Uh, um, you know, how does a case that only had one vote a few years earlier become a 6-3 the other way? And so you're seeing that, there was another, I just read a Chuck Cooper piece on Justice Thomas's opinions in the administrative state cases, right? Uh, taking on this behemoth of the administrative state where all the powers seem to coalesce, you know, judicial, legislative and, and, and uh, executive into these executive branch agencies that are essentially running the world, you know, how they fit into our constitutional structure. And Chuck Cooper said something like Justice Thomas has written these three concurrences um, that he's the only one writing on and will never have, you know, four other justices that will agree with Thomas and he was kind of lamenting that. And yet, lo and behold, a few years later, right, Thomas has has those votes. Celia Law is, is one example of it, uh, which has with the CFPB and the removal of, of, of the head of it. Um, so I think he. He doesn't think of them as losses. He thinks of them as, this is, as a justice. This is the right answer, uh, come what may. And I'm gonna do that. And then I don't have to worry about changing my words to try and get more votes. I don't need to worry about playing in politics, right? Um, You know, Brennan used to say, what's the most important word? Um, You know, uh, something like that, two words up here. And his clerks would be, yeah, you know, it was uh, five votes, right? Mm-hmm. And if he could collect five votes, that was that was a win, and that mm-hmm. was the most important thing to him. I think Justice Thomas is of the view of, let's get this right, and we're going to dig deep, and we're going to write, and that's you know that's what that, that's what we're going to lay down.
0: Okay, uh, you mentioned the book. We're linked to that in the show notes. Um, anything else that you wanted to hit on before we let you get out of here? Final anecdote or, or story that we didn't cover?
1: He's, um, he's just a, a really giving guy. Uh, you know, right after the confirmation, I was diagnosed with cancer and he was all beat up. Um, and, you know, when I was going through my chemo and all my, you know, um, treatment called me every day or visited me every day. And he's that way with so many people. It's just astonishing. Uh, the nuns who, you know, taught him in the, in the, you know, in elementary school in the segregated South, these Irish nuns, They're all older, obviously, in the 80s and 90s and 2000s and retired. And we'd we'd go together, but he'd go visit all of his, all those nuns once a year and spend the day with them. Um, You know, and it's just, those are the, so those are the things that are important to him, not whether Samuel L. Jackson (laughs) thinks well of him, right? Or some talk show host is is trashing him. He could care less about that. What's important to him is his faith in his family and his friends. And so- He's a joyful guy. That's the thing that people are shocked about when they meet Clarence Thomas. He's joyful and loves life. Yeah, lots of people have maybe heard his booming laughter, but it's just his entire approach is he's loving, engaging in, uh, with, with people at all stations, up and down uh, and all around.
0: Okay, Mark, well, did not know about the cancer diagnosis. Best of luck on that. Um, the book obviously created equal we'll link to it in the show notes. Anywhere else that you want to point people to follow your work at?
1: Uh, uh, on Twitter, I'm at, at Mark Paoletta. So that's M-A-R-K-P-A-O-L-E-T-T-A.
0: Okay, we'll link to that as well. Thank you for your time and best of luck on the book. Thanks. Thanks, fine. Bye. Okay, folks, that is my interview with Mark. Let me know. What you think of Clarence Thomas, the other justices, how do we view justices? Where in the newsletter? RyanRaySenior.com slash newsletter is where you can give all that information and give your feedback right there. We'll talk to you real
1: soon.